All right. First Corinthians chapter one. We're going to begin reading in verse 26 and we're going to read through chapter two, verse five. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 26 through chapter two, verse five. God's word says, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We have um, begun our investigation into the power of unity among God's people. That it's not something we're going to create within ourselves, but something that is the result of the work of God in us if we will simply allow Him that work. That it begins and ends with Christ. It is what identifies us. In fact, um, as believers, it is what defines us. It is not only who we are, but what we are. That when Christianity is genuinely brought into our lives and we are truly subordinate to this person, Jesus, to the degree, the radical degree that God calls us to, we will find that um, the expectations that the book, a book like Corinthians has for us become relatively rudimentary. It's not something we are, we're going to struggle and strive against, but rather that which we're going to absorb and seek to bring into our very life and that we are gladly want to ascend to. Paul is dealing with a carnal church that have given themselves to Christ in a salvific manner at one point. And he is recognizing that repeatedly here that that had occurred. Yet, they were clinging to the world's ways. Clinging to their old values. And thinking that somehow they could fit Christ in without disrupting their view of society, their view of sin, their view of themselves. And Paul takes them to task. So he begins, as we must begin, by grasping the necessity of Christ. We talked about the fact that he names the name ten times in ten verses to begin the whole book. We come to this passage as part two of what we saw last week, that the message of the church is Jesus Christ. Is it the singular, in other words, is that all there is to what we teach? No. 
Is that the uh, unifying standard that we go by in terms of our relationship with other bodies of saints uh, or so-called saints? No. There is more to it than that. But in terms of our outreach, in terms of what is our message to the world and what is the foundation of all that we do in the church, it is Jesus Christ, His person and His work. And thus there is no room for me to exalt myself or to any of you to exalt yourselves because there's only one to be exalted in our midst and that is the person Jesus Christ. Because we recognize that every one of us is utterly and completely void of anything to bring to the table of our own merit. Rather, we are completely dependent upon His work in us. And we recognize that whatever I have now to contribute to the body of Christ, it is not my own or to my own glory, but it is of Christ. It is His gift to me. He is the author of my very life. He is the author of my eternal life. And I am entirely indebted to Him for whatever I have to bring. And therefore, I bring it not as a gift giver, but as a manager of one who has been a recipient of a gift. There's a big difference. If I come as the giver, I expect to be thanked. I expect to be recognized um, because I am the author of the gift. And too many times, Christians come to the body of Christ with that kind of attitude, and the Corinthians were just like that. Here it is, here's something that I am doing for the church. Here's something that I can provide. Here is a, a talent or capacity that I have that can benefit you. And for a genuine, submitted Christian, those statements are in error. For we recognize that I am not the giver of a gift to the church. I am the recipient of a wonderful gift from God. And I am now a steward of that gift in the church. And there is a huge difference. Once we settle that difference in our mind, that I am not the giver, but the manager. God is the giver. And so when I walk over with the offering box and I put in my check, I am not looking, oh, I'm a, this is a great gift, and boy, I, the church is sure lucky that I am this generous. No. Nor do I sit there and say, I worked really hard, and boy, they're just so fortunate to have me here because I have such a capacity to make a monetary <laughs> gain and I can and I have the willingness to put it in there and we approach the offering box as a giver, you're approaching it with the wrong attitude. We approach the offering box as a steward saying that all that I have, all the strength that's in me, all the ability that I have to work and earn a living, I have received from God. And now, as a steward of that, as someone who is going to be held accountable to God for that, as someone who is managing something that belongs to someone else, I am here placing this offering in this box to recognize my stewardship. And who is the author of all that I enjoy. And it is far too long that Christians have spoken too much of their resources as if it's theirs when they are truly God's. So we, that's going to come up quite a bit in Corinthians. Um, and so when we talk about this fundamental shift in our attitude towards what we are who we are, what we possess, 
It boils down to, have you subordinated yourself to Jesus Christ? That is the issue. And Paul wants to reflect upon that issue by reminding them how it all started in your life. We talked about that last week extensively. We're going to press it on a little bit further this week. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We do thank you for your word before us. We do thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ, for his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, for his ministry to us today, the Holy Spirit within us, amongst us. And Lord, our prayer and desire is that you might move in our midst by your grace and mercy toward us. You might see fit to draw us near to you, to establish us firmer in our faith because of this time spent together with your people around your word. Lord, guard this time that its work might be your work and that it might just further your glorification in our midst. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul begins by describing for us that we left off last week that when you consider where you were at before you got saved, what you had to offer God was sin. That's what you had to lay on the table. Here's what I'm bringing to this agreement, my sin. And that is all I really have. I don't have any positive thing to bring. I have my sin. That's it. And I come to God in Christ Jesus and I am... And I recognize that that is all I have. I am weak. I am sinful. I am not mighty. I am not wise. Um, I, I, I don't trust in my birth. I don't trust in, in any of these things that the world might trust in or point to and say, oh, you're a, a, a valuable person to our society because of what you can contribute. I don't come to Christ with that attitude. That is the world's attitude. Look at what I can contribute to society. I'm a valuable member of it, and therefore I should, you should glorify me. And it's kind of interesting in our society today who we count as valuable members um, that need to be glorified. Um, right now they are um, hypocrites called, well, that's the Latin word or the Greek, um, Greek, uh, which means actors. If you want to translate the word hypocrite, it means actors. Um, actors and sports figures um, that they are somehow to be exalted in our midst simply because um, they are a valuable part of society, um, because they entertain us. Why do we exalt them so highly? Because what is important to us in our society is entertainment. It rises above pretty much anything. It wasn't always that way, but in this last generation or maybe a little bit more, um, entertainment has risen to the top as the priority of our environment. And that's not new, by the way. We didn't invent that. Um, that actually was the case in Rome, not you know a few hundred years ago, a few centuries ago. That became the problem in Rome, that the Colosseum and all the games around it became the focus point, and everyone had to take off every day to go over the Colosseum and be entertained. Sound familiar? Entertained by what? Sex and violence. Sound familiar? Just because you don't go to the Coliseum, you go to your den and turn on the screen that takes up the whole wall now. It's not enough to have it just this big. You've got to have it at least you know half the wall size um, to be enraptured and taken away by what? 
Same things. So this is nothing new, um, but it reflects upon our society. What do we value? Well, in the church, what do we value? Do we look at people and we identify them as you're more valuable to our society, this local church society, because you can contribute X, Y, and Z? No. We look at one another and we see Christ. We look at one another and say, oh, that Christ would work through you and in you and, and, and in our church. That we look at one another and say, look at the work Christ has done. Look at the work that Jesus has done in us. And Paul reflects upon that, that you come to Christ with humility, recognize that you're nothing. That you have no asset to present to Him that would qualify you for His love. Aren't you glad? It wasn't required. You have nothing. And God says, it is you that I'm calling. You that are willing to humble yourself and recognize that you bring nothing but sin, nothing but debt to the table. You are the ones that I call to salvation. Which, by the way, is all men because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No man has any asset to bring to this table called salvation. But it's those who are willing to recognize it that can then come, humble themselves before God, and receive. And this is what Paul has said, that those who have believed um, were saved. Verse 21. So we saw that God is going to take these things. He has chosen to respond to those who humble themselves before Him and to then exalt them. To infuse in them His grace, His mercy, which is far more than just removing your debt. And He does do that, praise God. He does remove the sin debt. Boom! It's gone. But that's not enough. Poor people, by the way, don't have any debt. Have you ever noticed that? We call them poor, but if you really come across poor people, uh, they don't have a lot of debt. Um, if you go to homeless people, they don't owe anybody anything. <laughs> okay? They, they don't have a lot of debt. It's rich people that have debt. Isn't that interesting? Think about it. I go to Haiti, almost nobody has any debt. They're, they're, they're struggling to get today's food. Okay? But they don't have any debt because no one will borrow, lend them anything. Um, and that's just the way it is. Go to the poorest country, you have the least amount of debt carried by the individuals. You go to the richest country in the world, and you have the highest debt service. Isn't that interesting? Christ isn't going to keep you poor or in debt. He's not going to keep you at zero, nor is He going to keep you in the, the negative. He is going to remove all of that, but then He's going to grant to us. So in His mercy, He removes the debt, and then in His grace, He's going to grant us these great assets. And when we look around at one another, we say, it wasn't me that contributes anything to the church. It is the work of God in me. And so there is no glory that should be coming my way. It should all be going towards Christ. So if we're going to glory about anything in the church, Paul reminds us twice, first of all, that our flesh should not glory, um, that no flesh should glory in His presence. And that he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Because we are in Christ Jesus. That is the root and foundation and source of all that we claim of value in the church. Which includes wisdom, verse 30. Righteousness, 
sanctification, and redemption. He's just covered a lot of bases here with these important theological words to describe for us all that Christ has done for us. Let's look at them very briefly as I go through these, okay? Um, first of all, He has become for us wisdom. He has become for us that wisdom of understanding the truth of God's Word and its application to our life. And the idea that somehow we have to rely upon really smart people to do that is to deny Scripture. The fact is that the one we rely upon is Jesus Christ. That it is His wisdom that takes up residence in us, residence in us, and it is upon that that we delve into. And, and in fact, smart people don't always get it. A lot of times their intelligence sometimes gets in the way. Mine does too. Yours does too. And we have to sit down and say, well, this doesn't completely make sense with my experience. I don't... Are you... Is he sure? He's sure. He's God. He's written it in His Word. It is reliable. It can be trusted. And it is this wisdom that when acted upon and brought into our life that we have the fullness of this Christian experience. And we can sit there and marvel at testimonies of people, but you listen to their testimonies of where God did great things in their midst, it was because they were entirely dependent upon His wisdom. They did things that don't always make sense to us. And I'm not telling you to go out there and be abjectly foolish. The wisdom of God isn't that. It is not a lack of wisdom in terms of the world. It looks like foolishness to the world, but among the believers, it is reasonable. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. Because we understand a root, a foundation of the existence of God who is active in the world and to whom we will have to give an accounting. Once you have that foundation, now we can reason. You can't reason with the world because they don't have that foundation. We talked about that last week. And therefore, we introduce Christ, Christ, Christ to them. It goes on. Not only do we have wisdom, we have righteousness. That is not our own righteousness that we do, but Christ's righteousness infused in us, imputed to us. Sanctification, that is to be set apart. And oh, we have lost this. If there's something that I would put my thumb on, we have lost some, a lot of wisdom. The church is not operating wisely in this world. Uh, they, they have absorbed the world's wisdom and are functioning by it and taking their cues from it instead of from God's Word. We see that around, and we see the, the results of that. But one of the key areas in church experience that I see waning is sanctification. Sanctification means I am set apart, and that is tied to the word holy. I am set apart. Set apart from what? From what the world is. From what the world does. From what the world looks like from what we used to be. I am set apart to God. And He calls us to the sanctification and it's not that it's something that I'm going to do for me, but this idea of the work of God to sanctify me, to set me apart as one uh, reserved for His kingdom. It, it is comparable to taking a child and discovering that he is of royal blood and he needs to be 
taken aside and he's be trained in his royalty. Which means that he needs to be trained in all the graces and in all the, all the expectations of society for how a royal person should be able to perform their function to rule and reign. And essentially God says, I want to take you aside and train you at a higher caliber. Train you at a different level. Because I have an expectation that you are going to have a greater responsibility, which God has stated that we will. And so we are to be set apart. And it is distinct from righteous. Righteous is doing what is right and having God, Christ's righteousness imputed to us that we stand just. We have not just zero, but we have a, a asset called the righteousness of Christ. Now, sanctification says you're going to set yourself apart from the world. And oh, how the Corinthian people needed to hear that. Does that mean we're not supposed to ever go out and go to the mall or to go to the grocery store or, or go out there and work with these heathens? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that in the manner in which we go out there amongst the world, it is evident that we are not of the world. And Christ makes this very clear in His teaching the disciples. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. And it should be evident there should be specific things that they can look at you and say, well, that's not true. That's not true. That's weird. That is not normal. I don't, I don't recognize any of those things. A couple of weeks ago, I, um, went to the, um, oh, what is it? Wrecking yard. I needed a, well, actually, it was a couple of months ago. I went to the wrecking yard. I needed a thing for my truck. Walked in there and they dug around. They got it out and they, well, I bought it from them and a, and a spare as well. And and so I got this material from, gave them the credit card, and uh, the man had a problem. And so um, didn't know how to use the machine. So um, the uh, his son or grandson or someone came in and and just like at my house, you know, the young ones all know how to use the gizmos. I don't have any. I'm losing track of how to use gizmos. Um, I think that's one of the sure signs of old age. Well, here comes the younger guy. He comes in and looks at the ticket. The guy had run it twice, and, and he's like, oh, no. And so he runs, and, and they're like, well, it looks like um, they got run twice, so we're going to run it again and credit you back. Um, and so I got my credit card bill, and uh, sure enough, there was the credit. And there was a single charge. There was not a double charge. So the first one didn't go through. Um, he was mistaken. And um, here I am. Now it's a month and a half later from the time I bought it to the time I see it on my credit card statement. What do you do? What does the world tell you to do? It's their mistake. they got to eat it. But you see, we're not thieves. We should be set apart. We should be different. And so I trot down there and I walk in there and I said, there was a mistake when you ran my credit card. And you know what he thought? The thought, the mistake was, to his favor, that I wanted him to... And I had... It took me 10 to 12 minutes to... Con to get them to understand, I'm here to give you money. 
He was sure that I was there because I thought I got ripped off. I said, no, I am here to give you money because I brought all the receipts and I said, here they are. This did not happen. You didn't run it twice. You only got it through once. Here's the credit. And so I ended up not paying you for the stuff that I bought. So I brought you cash for what I bought. And it finally sunk in after about 12 minutes of me trying to explain it about seven times. I am bringing you money because I owe it to you. And um, his, he just looked at me. I said, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and I'm no thief. I'm not doing this because I'm a good guy. He's like, well, I don't think I've ever seen anyone do anything like this. And I said, the question is, would you do it? Would you do what I've just done? As a small business owner, would you do what i just done if someone made that mistake? He said, probably not. And I said, well, then there's a difference. If you want to find out what that difference is about, I'd be glad to talk to you about Jesus Christ because that's the one who made the difference in my life that I would do this. See, there should be a fundamental difference. We should be set apart. And there should be, it should not even be something we struggle with. It's just obvious. I didn't pay for this. When you take things and not pay for them, it's called stealing. And I recognize that is not something that God's called me to. And the world might say, no, it was a mistake. It was their mis-error. I can't tell you how many times um, we are always in a quick rush to run back in the grocery store and say, oh, you misscanned this to your favor and against me, but we, are we willing to go in there and do the same thing when they scan it to our favor and against them? You see, set apart means I operate on a whole different premise. I live my life with a different philosophy, fundamentally, and therefore my appearance, my dress, um, my my listening habits, my speech, um, my uh, my uh, activities that I participate in, my the way I work is all evidence. It's things that people can touch and see and handle and say, you're different. And that's what Paul calls the Corinthians to. Listen, you're different not because of the sermons you hear. You're different because of the work of Christ in you. He can set you apart to that kind of living. And then lastly in this list, we have redemption. That is that we are bought and back. We are purchased. And that ownership is the Lord's. And we've already talked about that this morning. That we are stewards of what um, is really God's in us. We are simply the vessels carrying His grace and His mercy and as redeemed ones that are owned and belong to God, we are now not the givers, but the stewards of His grace. We press on in chapter 2 very quickly. Again, Paul repeats, this message is what I came with. I didn't do it in excellence of speech. I didn't do it because I'm, I was really smart and, uh, and had great wisdom. I didn't do it by, by reasoning, um, by uh, persuasive words of human wisdom. I did not use any of those things. Uh, it doesn't mean he couldn't have used those things. Okay? Meekness is not the absence of strength. It's the control of it. He comes in and he says, I didn't come to you in my own Wisdom and in, in the persuasive words. And there are a lot of Christians that, that 
I think they go into evangelism programs looking for that, that certain phrase that'll get the job done no matter who they talk to. You know, that certain argument that is irrefutable, that, that'll just impose almost the need to get saved upon the person they're talking to. And no such argument exists. There is no, there is no single set of thought or of, 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 uh, truth that you can communicate to people that will simply resolve everything that is in their heart and in their mind that keeps them from being persuaded to accept Christ their Savior. There is no pill that that will resolve that issue of men. And so when we are out there evangelizing with the world, there we, we preach Christ. And yes, people are going to resist it. Uh, can we argue them in? No. We must continue to preach Christ. You're a sinner. You're, you have a judge who is God Almighty. And we must keep preaching that same message, Christ, Christ, Christ. And we don't need to go to um, uh, a, a fallback position into these, these catchphrases of, that are going to answer and resolve every argument against receiving Christ. The fact is the problem isn't reason. The problem is sin. It is pride. And you cannot convince men against their pride. And so Paul says, I didn't come to you that way. Let's look at how he did come to him. Let's go to Acts chapter 18 very quickly. Acts chapter 18. This is him in Corinth. And we're going to see this. Uh, some would contend, well, he's disagreeing with what he said. Let's look at it very quickly. Uh, Acts chapter 18. He shows up in Corinth. He's come from Athens where he had his sermon that... Uh, got kind of mixed reviews. Um, verse 4 says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And you say, well, there it says that he did use persuasive words and he did reason with them. Where is he at? He is in the, ta- in the synagogue, which is dealing with a group of individuals who already have the foundation of the Old Testament. They have already followers of God. They are already those who profess to know the one true and living God, the creator of all that exists, Jehovah. And in that setting, because he has the foundation already laid that Jehovah is and that all the Old Testament, now he can reason with them and be persuasive because we already have a foundation of who God is and an acceptance of his word. When I deal with someone who says, I believe in Jesus and I will give you that the Bible is God's word, now I can reason and persuade them through God's word. But I want you to keep going. Because that's with the people in the synagogue. There's no contradiction here. Let's see what happens. With the majority of the people who accept Christ the Savior in Corinth, let's look at what happens. Um... He has an argument. Uh, they say that uh, they, they oppose him, blasphemy in verse 6. Um, and uh, he shakes his garment, says to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean from now on. I will go to the Gentiles. All right, so he's getting ready to leave the, the place that where God's Word is the foundation. And in this synagogue, there's, there was still the acceptance that you can still go to the Word of God and reason and persuade using the scriptures. Now he's getting ready to go out to the Gentiles. 
And uh, that takes him all the way next door. <laughs> he goes next door. The guy that lives next door to the synagogue is a guy named Crispus, I believe. The ruler of the... Uh, no, it wasn't. Uh, Justice, sorry. Justice, who lived uh, and worshipped God. House was next door to the synagogue. And uh, interesting, after Paul leaves, then Crispus, the ruler, believes. Many Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized, it says in verse 8. And, and uh, I want you... See what verse 9 says. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Alright, so effective is he that it gets a little notice. He gets a little opposition. And so they bring him to the Bema seat in verse 12. And this is their accusation. This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. When Paul's about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names in your own law, look to yourselves, for I do not want to be judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat, that's the Bema seat, then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. What I want to remind you of is that he is fearful in his speech. When he talks about them, him coming to them with a fearfulness and a, and a, and a little timidness, um, he was getting opposition from the Jews in the synagogue. He received it. That they, they followed him out into the community and tried to take him to court in the public system. And, of course, they they kind of backfired on them very badly. Poor Sosthenes gets the brunt of it, and perhaps he was the, the, the spearhead of the accusation. But we find that Paul has to be encouraged by God to um, keep speaking. Don't be afraid to talk. Be, why? Many Corinthians were hearing what he was saying and believing. What was he saying now? He's speaking of Christ. He's introducing the Christ. These are individuals who did not have the Word of God, who did not have the foundation of Jehovah, and yet many were believing. And Paul says, remember, when I came to you, it was Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ. And not that we are incapable of persuading, because we're going to see later on in chapter 2 that he's going to use persuasive words. He's going to now engage them in, in developing wisdom as a people. But it's as a people of God. Once we have received Christ as our Savior, once we have given credence to God's Word, once we have subordinated ourselves to the Holy Spirit, now we can reason. Now we can, we can be persuasive because the foundation for persuasion is the Scriptures. This is my speech and my preaching was not really my own wisdom. I just preached Christ. And that's the wisdom of God and the power of God. And we can rely upon that power in our witness. The power of Christ in us. That He is our wisdom. And Jesus Christ did not say, go out there and memorize 14 different presentations of the gospel before you go out there and witness. What did He tell you to do? Go out there and witness. And what did He say would happen? 
Did you have to have a memorized spiel to give to anybody? No, he says, the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say when the time comes. Really? Exactly! The Holy Spirit will tell you what to, how to answer. Does the Holy Spirit talk to you like that? He should. If righteousness and sanctification, the wisdom of, of if, if we are redeemed, if these things are true in Christ, that we are in Him, the Holy Spirit should be able to move us so that we have the answer to whatever we are confronted with from the world. That we have the answer. Does that mean the answer will of itself be persuasive to that individual? Perhaps, but perhaps not. How stubborn they are in their sin is still an issue. The fact is we don't go out there, I don't believe, with this program and say, I have these questions and, and we got to work our way through this and don't interrupt. You know, don't get me off track. I got to go through this. And now, would you like to pray this sinner's prayer? And here's the prayer. And I'm going to you repeat it after me. We use the wisdom of Jesus Christ. That is, we preach Christ again and again. That he was crucified for them. Paul says, I was in weakness, I was in fear, I was in much trembling. So much so that God had to directly intervene and encourage Paul, keep preaching, don't stop. Does it sound like it was easy? Does it sound like he had a one argument, quiets everyone approach? No. He was constantly at the task. And God tells him, keep going, I am with you. I am with you. When our trust is in the Holy Spirit, when our trust is in Christ, and when that is our singular message, and we know it inside and out and upside down and backwards, and we have a familiarity with His Word, not just, I think somewhere in here it says this, but we really know His Word. Oh, how easy it becomes for us to simply present Christ to people. And they will throw up their arguments against it and throw up their arguments against it and it'll, it'll be water off a seal's back because it'll just run off because it can't stand against Christ. And they know it. And we just keep going back to Christ, to Christ, to Christ. This man Jesus died for you. What is your argument against such a loving act? You're a sinner. What is your argument against that? That you're not as bad a sinner as the next person? When we preach Christ in the wisdom of God, in simplicity, we do not lack power. We have tapped the power of the gospel. All the wisdom of men cannot stand against this name, Jesus, that we preach. And so our faith is not in, I was convinced by this guy's argument, but our faith is, I submitted myself to the one Jesus Christ. 
And it's his power in me that is at work today. This is our fundamental message. If we don't have that alike in the church, we cannot have unity. We will not have the power of God. When that is the foundation for the church, and we have all subordinated ourselves to this personal work of Jesus Christ, now unity is not only possible and reasonable, it's expected. It's commanded. Because what stops unity is really pride. And there's no place for pride in the gospel. For if we are together glorifying God, together submitted to the Holy Spirit, allowing His wisdom, His words to work in us, if we are together willing to conform our lives and thinking to Scripture, then there should be unity in thought, in practice, in beliefs. And this is what Paul's going to call Corinthians to and so calls us to.